right, our beautiful listeners. As you all know, we love to bring guests on the podcast who are out there doing big things, shaking things up, doing what they do best, and today is no different. On the line with us today is someone who is not only fierce, she's an advocate for social change, an attorney serving the vulnerable communities in the sports, entertainment, and business industries nationwide. She is a best-selling co-author of the book called Code versus Code, the Street Code versus the Legal Code, Rethinking Your Business Transactions, and host of Seek Elevation with Alakisha Empowercast podcast. Oh, Alakisha, what don't you do? <laughs> that was my introduction. She, she does everything. <laughs> but welcome to the Media Lounge Podcast. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to chat with us today. We are excited to have you on. Yes, Thank absolutely. you. She's not only She's my attorney, also my friend, good friend of mine, so I'm happy to have her. Yes, yes, Carlos has been raving about you for a long time, <laughs> and I love it, so let's bring her on. <laughs> so, Alakisha, I know you're originally from New York, but you are now in, in Atlanta, is that correct? That is correct, yes. Okay. I am in Riverdale, so, Georgia. Oh, okay, okay. So let's start with the basics here because there is just so much to learn about you. Tell us about your upbringing in Albany, New York. When did you know you wanted to become an attorney? And more specifically, when did you know you wanted to specialize in entertainment law? Okay, so let's start with the first one. Tell you a little bit about my upbringing in Albany, New York. Well, uh, originally, um, I was raised in a smaller town called Schenectady. It's about 30 minutes from Albany. And um, it, it was amazing for, for me, right, because I had nothing really to compare it to. When you're growing up, that's all that you know. I lived um, in this small city where I felt like it was, you know, community and uh, lots of friends. It was the good, bad, and ugly, of course, but it's just what you knew. Um, it wasn't just the neighborhood. I knew the people who lived on my block. You can actually borrow butter, sugar, and eggs from your neighbors <laughs> next door. You could actually go upstairs or downstairs, depending on where you live, because usually the um, apartments you have someone that lived upstairs or someone that lived downstairs. You can go upstairs and downstairs if they had kids. Um, there was public transportation to get everywhere, which is totally different than here in Atlanta. Um, even when I moved to South Carolina, it's totally different. So growing up, I was used to that public transportation where you could go to and fro. And, um, yeah, so it was absolutely amazing. But, of course, there were issues um, such as police issues, neglected neighborhoods, struggling school systems, and, of course, the survival lifestyle and again, when I grew up, I was just living. I mean, I didn't really notice it for what it was until my adulthood. But at the time, it was just like, okay, I like this, you know, um, a single mom with uh, two other sisters. So we definitely was getting assistance. I was standing in those long lines waiting for that block cheese and powdered milk. I was excited mm -hmm. to go on my shopping sprees at Salvation Army. It was all those little small things. But I can tell you, um, I remember when my mom got her first brand new car. It was a, a white Grand Am. It was like a sports car. And it was like, wow, you know, it just felt good. I knew it was something that was, that was different. And I used to watch my mom just being a beast as, as a worker, as an indie artist because I grew up in the entertainment industry with her singing in, in different bands, and she inspired me. And I knew that I just wanted something more. I didn't know what that more was. Um, but, yeah, it, it was just it was great. Mm -hmm. oh, wow. so, I love it. You mentioned the Salvation Army. I grew up yes. going to the Salvation Army, and I still love shopping at the Salvation Army. Like, they, you can find some really classic pieces there. Yeah, I, I absolutely, like it, but I know 
<laughs> I know what you mean by like your upbringing. You were in the line waiting for food. I, I know exactly what that means. But hey, I love the Salvation Army. I just had to throw that out there. <laughs> that, that and Goodwill. Now look, let's let's not forget yes. about uh, Goodwill. So Salvation Army is great, but that Goodwill, um, you have yep. amazing people giving great stuff, especially if you know the right neighborhood communities to go to when you go yes. to Goodwill. So. Oh, agreed, agreed, totally. Thank you for sharing that. Now, what made make the move over to Georgia? Actually, so I went to the University of Albany um, when I lived in Albany. I ran track in high school, and I got um, a couple of scholarship offers my senior year. And I decided that I was going to go to Seton Hall University. That's where, you know, I envisioned to go. But um, after graduating, I had found out that I needed to take care of a couple of things before I'm able to accept these offers. And one of them was getting a good score on the ACT or SAT. Because, you know, being the, the middle child who was going through the whole school system um, as the first one in my immediate family going through the high school system as far as athletics and, and graduating and what you have to do, I was learning. And, of course, I had coaches and people around me to mentor me and to guide me. And, and one of my coaches actually helped me with that situation as far as taking the ACT and SAT. And so I had to sit out um, that first year as I did that. And during that time of sitting out, I aced the SAT. I had a great score, but then I became with child. And so I had the offer, and the coach at Seton Hall um, still didn't want to rescind the offer. He was just saying, okay, you'll just come a little later and you'll come during the um, spring semester, which started in January. But um, for me, I knew that, okay, my child is actually due. She was due January. She didn't come to February, but she was due January. I was like, well, you know what? I, I felt like my best interest wasn't there because to ask someone, especially someone who was younger, to just leave immediately. So I turned that down, and um, I knew that after I had my daughter, I was just going to make other situations happen, and I did. I remember having her. I trained. I used to run around my whole city. Everybody used to see me running and training all the time, and I ended up getting accepted at the University of Albany, and I got in not on an athletic scholarship because people didn't know if to take a chance on me or not. There's this program mm -hmm. called EOP. And they offered academic scholarships, and they offer academic scholarships for individuals who did pretty decent in school and also just, you know, um, as far as financially was under a certain status. And I remember I had to meet with boards of people, like people on roundtables, and here I was sitting there, you know, convincing them on why I was worthy of this um, academic scholarship. At the end of the day, I did receive it, and I had to attend their summer program. I did. I aced it, and then I was able to um, attend full-time. And I was a walk-on, a walk-on mm -hmm. on the track team, and I went from there to excelling, breaking all the school records, and I knew I wanted wow. something, you know, bigger, and that's why I moved to, mm -hmm. university, uh, to South Carolina and attended the University of South Carolina and then brought me here to Atlanta after I graduated. Mm -hmm. right. Impressive. So, so tell me, yeah. Right. So tell me, how many awards have you have you won? Because I know you've you've like you broke a lot of records and won a lot of awards. You know, compete. I did actually. Um, I mean, I've been competing in high, like I said, track since high school, my second year of high school. So I won of a lot of accolades in, in high school, a lot of awards in high school. And then when I went on to college, I mean, a lot of conference awards and then national rankings and school records. But also, more importantly to me, I won a lot of academic awards. Um, it was just mm -hmm. something – I was like a student athlete by its truest sense of the meaning. So I know that you should say, oh, you're a student athlete. You're a student athlete. And usually what that means is you're a student attending school who's an athlete, and really you're going to focus on the athletic side. But right. I was always a person who, whatever I did, 
I had to not only give 100%, I just always set these goals to excel. And so, yeah, I won a lot of academic awards um, at University of South Carolina. When I graduated, I was awarded the best female student athlete of, at the university. Uh-huh. So it was student, and you had to meet a certain GPA and also be achieving things athletically, which was a, a great feat for me because it's the SEC conference. And so that is a, a tough conference alone. And um, I didn't realize this until years later, but I made history. I was the mm-hmm. first um, woman who won the 100 hurdles and 400 hurdles at an SEC championship. And I didn't even know wow. that until um, there was an article written uh, years later. But, um, yeah, I was, you know, a lot of awards. Con- congrats oh, on that. You. That is awesome. I'm pretty Thank sure nobody you. tried to try you. Nobody tried to try you trying to snatch something from you around from you because you probably caught up with them and beat them down. You know, that's actually, while you're laughing, that's how I kind of got into running, right? Well, not necessarily, you know, from somebody to beat them down. But, but growing up, um, all the boys always wanted to race me. It was like we had at the end of, in, in middle school, at the end of um, the school year, it was like a field day. You know, you just did like this thing with the different activities. And I remember I would race, and I was like, oh, she's so fast. And I knew nothing really about track. We just were racing each other. And so people would always challenge me. Every time I get a challenge after school, okay, can you beat this person? I remember this one, this one young gentleman, um, his name was Maurice, rest in peace. He has, he's no longer with us, but we were in school. Mm-hmm. He will always ask to race me, and he'll go away for a week, and he'll come back and do it again and do it again. And I didn't know I was, a, you know, becoming a track star at that time. I had to race people <laughs> in my neighborhood and who's going to get me. But, I, I, look, I was undefeated. So, but, yeah, that's kind of where it started at. No, wow. No, no, uh, no running from the police stories, right? <laughs> no. So the beautiful thing is, and I did see other people, right? But, no, the beautiful thing is um, when I got involved in sports and track, uh, I became, you know, very popular in high school because it's almost like there's this respect for people who can bring certain notoriety, you know, to the community. And it was like even in the area I lived and things that happened, it was always like this protection bubble because of what I was doing and accomplishing for Mm. our community. So I really didn't have to, you know, deal with any of that, but I, I carried that on my shoulders, not just for my family, right? I wanted right. to do that. I, I was proud of that. Um, and I knew something special just from the responses yeah. from people around me of what I was doing. Right, right, right. That's amazing. That's amazing. So I wanted to fast forward a little bit. I wanted to uh, talk, uh, ask you more about uh, when you had joined the Nike brand. Actually, mm-hmm. what was what was that uh, opportunity like for you? Oh man! So by that time, so actually it was my last year um, in college, and it was Olympic trials. It was the 2000 Sydney Olympic trials, and there was a lot that I was already going through transition-wise, mentally. So physically, during this time, I want to say I was probably in the best physical shape ever. But I was at a crossroads mentally, right? And it was because there was just a lot. So during, remember I told you I was with a child before going to college. So now you know that throughout college, not only was I balancing this academic um, schedule and demand I put on myself and the athletic demand I put on myself, I was also balancing being a mother. And, and it it required, you know, traveling and thank goodness when I did move to South Carolina from New York, you know, my mother, she came with me as well and, and she uh, assisted me, but it was this thing where I had to travel and be away from my daughter. Um, It was just so much I was thinking about and I knew that professionalism was going to be the next step. And I really was trying to contemplate what that will all look like. So by that senior year, it was Olympic trials, and I was being told, you know what, this is it. You, you do it here, doors can open. Doors can really open. And so I was in it, 
but I don't think I was 100% sold out. But after the – we had to run rounds, rounds, and I made it to the final round. After the final round, I looked up on the scoreboard to see where I placed at, and I got fourth. Now, I know they take the top three, automatically go to the Olympics. Fourth place is considered the Olympic alternate, and you have to be, you have to stay ready. You have to register like everyone else. You have to travel like everyone else. You have to just be ready. And when I looked up and seen four, I was like, wow, you know, maybe I'll just go ahead and do this. And by the time I made it back to the stands, I, you know, met my coach there. My coach said, you know what? There's an agent that's really, really interested in in you, and um, Nike wants to sponsor you. And so I don't know. It, it was like it was it was surreal. I wasn't jumping up and down, but I wasn't. Um, I, I don't know how to explain. I don't want to put it in words. It's just a place, a space that I was in. And then it all happened from there. Um, the contract happened, thick contract that I did not read um, at the time. Yeah. And I right. And I was excited about all of the clothes that Nike was given and the and the budget we had, and I was able to give gifts to individuals. And very soon I realized, wow, what used to just be more recreational and fun became a very, very serious job because not only did I have these certain demands on myself, I started to have these external demands because now I became a product. And, um, you know, I I became a product for everyone, and I was like, okay. Okay, I see. I see. I see. I see what this is all about now. But um, yeah, yeah. So I like so Nike should have had you on their billboard. <laughs> you said what? You <laughs> said Nike should have had you on their billboard, the magazines and stuff. <laughs> I mean, let me tell you, because look, it's, it, they had someone who was not just you know, athletically inclined, but someone who was business and beast inclined. But then again, that's not what people want, right? They want to just focus on what you can do on the field, on the track, on the court. But throughout my time, I really, 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 really got attracted to the business side. Because when I did go pro and I realized, okay, it's not just track the sport, it's track the business. The same mindset I had as a student athlete where I was focusing on those academics while I was, you know, breaking barriers and kicking in walls on the track is the same thing that happened when I became pro. It was like, okay, I'm competing, but I really, really want to master this business side, especially after getting that first contract and not reading it. When I switched agents, that's the first time I ever read the first contract I had, and going into the next contract. And so I really quickly had to get a debt on the business side and learn a lot because I only had me. And I just took that just like academics. I just started mastering it, and I learned so much about the business side. And then at that point, I was really kind of going through the motions of competing because I, I bit the bug and I was more hungry on the business side. I even started helping my colleagues mm-hmm. negotiate. Mm-hmm. Look at the, I was negotiating my own contracts. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. Okay. So, yeah, so, yeah, definitely. That's a real good story. So tell us about uh, when you had landed uh, your first head coaching job. Oh, yeah. So just like any industry within an industry, right, the circles are small. People think it's so huge. When you even talk about entertainment, it's not that – it's not as big as you think it is. When you're in it, you start to run around and – hit the same people in those circles, especially within mm-hmm. entertainment. There's, there's now sub-industries. And so within, mm-hmm. you know, film, you're going to run into people. Within, you know, music, you're going to run into people. It's the same thing. So within mm-hmm. track, um, within sports, people get to know you. And at that point, right. when you're doing stuff that's noticeable, notable, it's not about who you know. It becomes who knows you. And there was a situation where there was this coach who was, you know, coaching at this uh, university. She got another uh, opportunity, and she started asking around, who could I refer as my replacement? And my name started being thrown around as I think this would be somebody that can not only be a replacement but would do amazing for the program. And then I got the phone call. Um, from her and was like, look, there's, you know, referrals. People are saying that, you know, 
you, you would be a great fit for this opportunity. I got, you know, she told me about the opportunity and then I had several meetings and I took that, I took the position and I did make history, a lot of history at the, at the school. It was actually Fort Valley State University. Um, I got, oh my gosh, I lost count, I think 32 All-Americans, um, school records and uh, we won conference championship for the woman that hadn't been won in seven years. It was it was so wow. much that I accomplished during my time uh, there. But what was really great about it was not only that I was able to give people in the community opportunities, not only were it, it was a situation where I was able to sit down with athletes and talk to them more about than about the track. Because remember, when I was in college, is the experience I brought as a coach to these college athletes. So I was using track to expand their mind and their awareness and their, and their desires and their drive off the track. And so I started to learn, wow, this is really showing me that I, I, I want to be on the business side because I want to really, really help people use their platforms to excel in life, period. Right. Yeah. Plus, I know you yeah. already had your dresses full of trophies and everything already. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And those things help with, with people believing, like kind of being sold right. into you at first. But, right. but then you've got to carry, carry that on because people can read through, you know, what's not real. So it gets you in that door, but what gets people to really respect you and to really stick with you is, is what you bring to the table after that. And I continue to have, yeah. you know, long relationships with all of those athletes that I coached. Nice. Now, and Lakeisha, in addition to becoming a head coach for the NCAA, you also became an NFL agent. Can you tell mm -hmm. us about that? Yeah, so it was one of those situations where most of the stuff that's happening in my life, it's not so much um, I planned out, oh, I want to be an NFL agent one time. I never had that on my radar at all. It's, <laughs> at all. As one situation, I was assisting um, being referred to, or individuals being referred to me, I should say, that were NFL prospects because the word got around of, you know, my advocacy and my, my fight and how I represent individuals. And I was getting all of these um, referred potential NFL candidates and if you're not a certified agent, there's only but so much you can do, right? So there's just these, these mm -hmm. rules, these strict rules. And so people started saying to me, you need to, you know, consider getting certified so you can help them, you know, in a more impactful way. It doesn't have to stop right here. You can go as far as you want as far as helping them. Um, that was from people that referred athletes to me. And then I started talking to people that used to be in the NFL and was like, you know, I would love to work with you to do certain things, you know, for these athletes, for what you're speaking and how you use your platform. These are the things that they need to know. And it would be great if you get certified because you'll be able to enter into a door that I couldn't, but then I have some that, you, that will help you also. And so people just started to put that bug in my ear. And I thought about it, and I was like, okay, well, let me try to go for it. And then you had those other people that was like, what? No, that's kind of hard. I mean, statistically, that's a hard door to get through, <laughs> especially if you don't know about um, football like that, um, if it's your first time, the, the passage rate is low, especially for women and especially for black women. Oh, that's going to be hard. Oh, when you get like right. that, when, when people get like that with me, that really makes me do stuff. Like that has <laughs> my motivating factor in life. You tell me all the no's, that's going to really put my ear up and say, oh, oh. Okay, I've got to do this, and, and I did. I went, watch me, watch how it goes. But um, <laughs> I went for it, and I did. I, I passed it on my first time. I studied. I remember even when I went to go take the exam in D.C., um, there were a handful of gentlemen that we all studied together. I was the only female, of course, and I became, um, they called me Mama Ella because they can ask me anything. <laughs> And I was sitting there <laughs> giving them, you know, all of the things and the ways to think about things and how to not just try to memorize something, but how to get it in your brain. And they really appreciated that. So, but yeah, I did it and I, you know, became certified. And then shortly after I got everything straight was five months later, the pandemic hit. 
Oh, and wow. I must okay. Like, so this yes. was recent. Ah, this was recent. Okay. That was last October. Last it was October year. before the March. Okay. Last year. Wow. Okay. So are you so you're not are you an active agent? I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen, you know, in the future. I know that there was sports, but I don't think there were many people at the games this year, right? I mean, how is that working for you? How's that going? Exactly. So how that was, uh, was so heart-wrenching, not so much for me, but for the athlete. So when, as soon as I um, got certified, my emails was blowing up. And I was, you know, I had to interview several athletes to decide who I even want to work with. And that's what happened. I went through that whole process, interviewed them. I chose seven athletes I want to work with, and uh, we were ready to go. I went to my first um, NFLPA. That's where the agents go, NFLPA um, uh, seminar. I went to the uh, NFL Combine. Everything was just going great. I had several NFL teams reaching out to one of my athletes all over the place. I mean, from the Falcons to, I mean, it was just so many people, um, Indiana, Colts, so many. And so we were so ready. And he had to do his pro day at his university, and we were waiting. And we just kept hearing week after week after week how many things were shutting down from facilities to universities to pro, and we were just biting my nails, you know, and then all of my athletes. Every last one who had pro days, things lined up, uh, teams reaching out, it just got silent. And I felt for them. You know, I did all that. I was was sending emails. I was telling them, look, don't let it stop you. Train solo and record yourself. This is just how I think, right? I'm so used to overcoming barriers. Like, it's just I'm a hurdler in life not just on the track. And mm-hmm. so when you put these hurdles in front of me, I get into attack mode. I'm ready to come out the mm-hmm. block and attack every hurdle. And so I go into that mode as a, a representation of my clients. And so I tell them the only thing I could think of. I'm like, no, it doesn't stop. We just have to, it's a curveball. Let's do it different. Let's get into that end zone. Look, yes. get your camera, record yourself. Record yourself working out. Record yourself doing whatever drills. Record yourself saying a pandemic can't stop me. Like, I just had all these ideals, and I think <laughs> for me I was too ambitious for and mindset for the individuals I was with, and so, you know, it just didn't align because, they, you know, I, I, I guess mm-hmm. it's hard. You're also young men. You're young, and right. you just want it to go the way that you think it should go. And so, yeah, that's a monkey wrench in it. So I'm, I'm still feeling right now what I want to do with that because you're right. It's been, a, it's been different. Everything is different. Yeah. And I haven't accepted. I got some people that reached out, but I haven't accepted them as clients. Yes. But mm. the good thing about that is that you being an agent, I'm confident that you will be able to pick up where you left off. It's, I think, yes. harder for these athletes who may have missed out in a on an opportunity because of COVID. They may have stopped training. They maybe they're, they stopped pursuing it, whatever the case is. But I think that you will be able to pick up right where you left off. Absolutely. I mean, with the position I'm in, I'll be able to do that. But the one thing I've learned and the reason why I'm even still, I'm in this, I'm in this place of strategically thinking what I want to do is because, especially as an agent, you're just mm-hmm. a portion of that situation, of that factor. The mm-hmm. athlete is the major. And mm-hmm. I have to feel where are athletes at right now mentally, right? I have to feel mm-hmm. what do you want to do mentally because I'm here to give you everything you can't do, but I can't do what you won't do. Right. So right. that's where I'm at. Yeah, valid so point. What, what made you, what made you, um, you know, do the NFL, but uh, like not like the NBA or the MLB and, you know, other sports organizations like that. Right. So it was just literally because of those different individuals who were telling me to go ahead and get certified, and I was just getting these referrals from the NFL. But then after I got certified, it was on my list. I wrote it down that I was going to go for the um, NBA, not the MLB, but I was definitely going to go. That was my next step is to to go for the um, NBA. And maybe because I still do. I do feel mindsets are different. 
Um, so I look at a lot of different things. I may add that to it as well. Um, I don't know yet. I'm going to just fill out where we're going with everything before I make that leap. But before all this happened, oh, yeah, it was, it was coming next. Oh, yeah. Right, right, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and real quick, to and I know to all the inspiring sports agents, can you walk through uh, the you know the criteria that you know inspiring sports agents should take you know in order to get certified? Absolutely. So I know people have their different methods, but you have to prepare for that exam. That's that is the determinant factor is that exam, and it has nothing to do with how much you know about football. That exam is strictly about the business of football. And so I think one of the um, favorable factors for me was, like I told you, I've always been a business-minded person. I've been that person about the business of the sport. And I think the passage rate, the failure being so high and the and, and the passage being so low is because people go into it thinking about football, the sport, instead of football, the business. So if I could tell any agent, I don't care if you know every team by the back of your hand, that's not the questions they're asking on that exam. You have to know how to calculate, you know, the salaries, caps, um, insurance, retirement information uh, 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 questions. You have to know all of that different stuff. Uh, how to negotiate, what to negotiate, how to deal with these different teams, all the different teams. You have to know the business side of it. And what I will tell people is you get that CBA, the Collective Bargaining Agreement book, and every other materials that you can, supplemental materials, and you study the heck out of it. I studied, and I actually registered for a um, course. And the course was, I want to say it was eight weeks. Um, okay. And I took, I took the course for eight weeks, but you had an option from when I registered and I did my research, when I, from the, the, the time frame I registered, if you wanted to, you can do the last eight weeks. It was like you had eight weeks and then eight more weeks and it was time for the exam. I did the first eight weeks, and what most people wouldn't do, I did the next eight weeks. I just used the first <laughs> eight weeks to study a certain way because everything was new, and then the next eight weeks, I use it to test what I knew. And so I said you have to be committed to not just cutting corners, but you have to find the best way for this to become second nature to you. Right. Mm. 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 I like that. Now, you're an NFL agent. You're an entertainment attorney. What inspired you to become an attorney? And can you tell us some of the athletes and entertainers that you represent? Absolutely. What inspired me to be, actually, I call it an attorney who serves in entertainment. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I did not have an aspiration, again, like the NFL situation. I didn't aspire to be an attorney. It wasn't that long. I, I heard some of my, my uh fellow classmates who they gave their story. I always knew I was going to be an attorney since I was five years old. I didn't have that story. I, that, was, that wasn't me. I actually attended law school um, to further my career in human resources, right? So I, that's what, I, that's what I, I, I attended it for. But when I got there, um, my first semester towards the end, after I decided not to withdraw, because my first semester I was like, why did I do this? Uh, that hate mm. and process in law school was, yeah, whew, that it was something. And it's, it's definitely about the survival of the fittest. And I was questioning myself, especially being going to law school a little older. This would have been my third career. I was like, I have to take this. It was just a whole humbling experience. And when I had time to sit down and just really think to myself, I decided, one, not to withdraw, and then, two, I realized why I was there. It had nothing to do with human resources. It had all to do with I was already doing this. I was already assisting my training partners. I was already helping my mom, who's an indie artist. I was representing myself. I was advocating in these industries as far back as I knew. And I just got there and said, wait a minute, there's this, Game you just have to play. It's a piece of paper you need to get because it doesn't matter, unfortunately, all the experience you have. 
There are certain tables you're not going to be able to sit at. There are certain doors you're going to stand outside and continue to knock on unless you have this, this, this meal ticket in your hand to give someone. Mm. And so I started saying, wow, I see the level. I am prepared to go. I'm destined to go. And I need this one thing, not for me, not for me at all. It's for me to go to the level that I'm destined to go, not to just have a seat at a table or knock on doors and open them up, but for me to build those tables and create those doors. And so I knew that's why I was there, and I did it. And I, the confirmation for me was once I passed the bar, because I wasn't even planning on taking the bar. I was just going to get my Jewish doctorate. <laughs> yeah, I was going to okay. get my Jewish doctorate because that was going to help me for human resources. It was a doctor's degree to say, okay, I understand right. state and federal law. But mm-hmm. after I decided that this was the path, or it, it, it decided for me that this was the path, and I said yes to it, um, once I passed that uh, bar exam, oh my, I already had clients lined up. The first person that was referred was actually the second person. The second person referred to me was the world fastest man. He was coming out of um, college, and everybody was after him, all of the, you know, shoe companies, wow. agents, and he was referred to me. Um, the first client I had, uh, had was someone who is in the entertainment industry and is a, a dancer, choreographer, and danced for mm-hmm. BBD, Sierra, Miss Yelly, everybody. And I had, wow. I mean, so it just took off from there. I never ever look yeah. for a client. Every client I have has always mm-hmm. been referred or came to me. So I knew, yeah, this is it. Wow, wow. That is um, impressive. What an accomplishment. You didn't even plan it. I find it funny that you went to law school and then didn't plan on taking the bar. <laughs> I don't know. Is that no. common? Like I would, <laughs> I would think you'd go to law school to pass the bar, right? <laughs> no. Because, yeah, some people would go there, pass the bar, because I want to be an attorney. But my thing was I didn't want to be – I needed a doctor's degree. Yeah. And I had to figure right. out for my research and studying, what was the best doctor's degree for me to yeah. excel in this field? And the gotcha. best doctor's degree was a Juris doctorate for me to, to excel in human resources. Mm. Wow. Right. Wow, I love so, that. Story. So, what you? so tell me, how, how was uh, your law firm created? How did that, you know, you know, your stumping ground for Atlanta, you know, how, how did that, you know, you know, come together and, you know, and success, you know, because it's, you know, pretty much, you know, you're really successful now, you know. At this right. point, you know, because you just exceeding all the barriers that were thrown at you, you know. Well, like I had just said, it's this. It's when you walk into what's there for you. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be fruitful and it's going to be confirming. And I literally said yes to something that was already there. And when I said yes mm-hmm. and went all in, that's how I feel when I, I'm going to use air quotes, the success part of it came because I'm just doing that. But as far as how my law firm came about was I actually did talk to several um, attorneys and law firms after being barred about joining or, you know, considering another law firm, especially being in the entertainment and sports and um, all that good stuff. But when I had those conversations um, interviews and things like that. It was something always there that didn't sit well because I've been on the other side. What was different for me was it wasn't someone who just aspired to just be this entertainment attorney because it sounds great. It sounds like you can make all this great money. It was someone who lived that life that now was coming on this other side to assist people that lived that life. And so when I had certain conversations, I can tell when there was this connection to why individuals wanted to do what they wanted to do. And when that didn't resonate with me, I decided that the only way to do exactly what you have in your mind to do is to do it on your own. You cannot go into somebody's other situation and, you know, bogart them and have them do it the way that you envision. You have to have your own. And I did. And I knew I wanted to advocate for people and not just focus on billable hours. Right. So, yeah, so, it's just, so tell us about your, uh, your, your book, Code versus Code. Code oh, versus street code. 
Yes. Now that, um, now that is pretty interesting. <laughs> I, I, it was some, when I read that, I was, it was some stuff. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> like, man. <laughs> And what I did, right, when you read it, not only is it me speaking to the layman, I don't try to come from legalese, but I'm, I'm tying life into this whole concept of understanding your intellectual property, contracts, um, right to publicity. I, you see, I always tie that in. And so in my book, Code v. Code, the street code versus the legal code, rethinking your business transactions, I decided to write this empowerment guide for athletes, entertainers, and entrepreneurs because they're all, they all have something in common. Different industries, if you will, but they all deal with contracts. They all deal with mm-hmm. copyright, trademark, name, image, likeness. They all deal with those things. And I wanted to empower them because from growing up, from also my personal experience as an athlete, I told you I didn't read that first thick contract. Um, from being around a colleague, my colleagues that I've um, advised, the one thing I noticed is that there's an issue of cultural conditioning. There's this issue where we focus on what the streets tell us to do or how it should be done. We're not educated or empowered in how things need to be done, but just how someone told you, you watched somebody, you heard this, you did this, and you just jump. And you have either the talent, you have the product, you have the service, but you don't have the, the, the business acumen. And that is the street code when you operate like that. The legal code is a combination, of course, of the laws, that are established either through legislation and common law. And so you have this competing force between the street code, and the street code is even industry practices, if you will, right? There's a lot of people said, oh, that's just mm-hmm. how it's done in the industry. No, 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 no. Just because that's how it's always done doesn't make it right, right? And then we know a lot of right. things that has been done in the industry has been favorable to one side and not the other. So it's not about that. So there's this competing force between operating by the street code and understanding and operating by the legal code. When you operate by the street code, you put yourself in a position to lose everything. You're on the losing end of ownership. You're on the losing end of sustainable, sustainable income and wealth. And so what I'm doing in this book is nudging the reader, and I'm saying, hey, 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 you, rethink how you're going to do this whole business thing, right? Whatever you're doing as an entrepreneur, athlete, rethink how this is going to look. Because if it doesn't, someone else may dictate what that looks like and how many stories have come before you to tell you that. And so the court dockets are full with the same cases, not different. They're the same cases. And so in the book, I'm telling people, like, there is a win-win, but you have to know how to come to the table to not them, you know, literally, whoever's representing them or whatever, to be able to voice what that win-win is going to look like. Because if you come out and say, I have a bad contract, why? The contract didn't change after you got into it. The contract is the same contract Mm -hmm. you signed before you got into it, right? So, you were presented with that. Something happened right there. You didn't read something. You were just desperate about the, the, the number part, the numbers in the contract, and not every other provision. That, oh, that's the street mm-hmm. code. And yeah, so this right. book is saying, no, 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 no. You got to be accountable. Now, this is how you're going to get empowered with knowledge, and now you're going to be accountable to go and actually use your talents and your gifts, your products and service to attain what you're supposed to attain. Mm-hmm. Right, because like I said, um, you know, then also, you know, a lot of people, you know, then also, too, you also touched on in the book, too, you know, how everybody have, you know, the street code mentality where, you know, everybody do it, so I want to do it, too, because I want to touch yes. a little bit on that, you know, uh, like, for example, you know, I've seen it, we, we've all seen it um, as far as people on social media when they, you know, they go live or, or whatever and then, you know, they they have music playing in the background and the title, you know, they have it, oh, I don't own the rights to this music, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you, in the, in the book, you, you expounded 
pretty nicely on that. And, you know, I wanted you to break that down, you know. Absolutely. The street code is that. You're repeating the same stuff over and over. You see people put on the um, social media, anywhere online, they play music and they put this disclaimer, I don't own the rights to this music. And what I touch on in the book is, well, people know you don't, right? I know you do not own the right. <laughs> to Backstreet Boys or to um, uh, Lionel Richie or to uh, Mariah Carey or I know you don't own a right to any of that. You don't have to tell me that. But what you are doing is admitting that you're doing something that you're not supposed to do. You're admitting that you understand ownership. You're admitting that you don't own it at all. So you are actually admitting guilt before anything. Mm -hmm. You can't even plead innocence. Even though innocence doesn't get you out of a copyright infringement, it may get you less, you know, damages that you have to pay. But when you're putting that disclaimer, because you're used to repeating what everybody else does, you just repeated something that actually puts you in more hot water than not. And the only reason why mm -hmm. some people do not get in trouble is because the rights owner may feel as though, one, it's not worth going after you right here, or I could just tell you just do a takedown. Or, but when someone blows up, this is where rights mm -hmm. owners take advantage. It's not – they can sit back and watch, and it's not when they feel it's not worth it. But when it becomes worth it, every time you have infringed, will be added to that. And so now they can come at you any time that they want. Not only that, just because they don't go after one person doesn't mean that that bars them from deciding to go after you. As a rights owner, I can do what I want with my property. I can do what I want. Yeah. So, yes, that's, that's why I try to say in the book is stop following things just because you see it. And you don't know what you don't know until you know it. And that's why I try to say, okay, look, I'm going to write this book. That's why I got the podcast. I'm going to try to use every platform to get stuff out there because to do better, you have to know better and be yep. better. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Code versus code. Make sure you guys pick that up. Save yourself some time, trouble, educate yourselves. And before we wrap up, I needed to ask, you are the host of Seek Elevation Podcast. In summary, can you tell us what we can expect to hear on the podcast and where we can find the podcast? Absolutely. So with Seek Elevation with Ella Keisha, which I call an EmpowerCast, um, I empower you, another platform I use um, to mm. pull everything that I do into one place. I give tips, I give strategies, motivation, and present dialogue to plant a seed for growth personally and professionally professionally, legally, and socially. Mm -hmm. And I create in this conversation this nexus to show how it's all intertwined, right? So a person who looks at themselves with little value because of their experience in life or what have you, they just have this little value for themselves, they're going to approach a contract deal just like that. That's how you're going mm -hmm. to deal with a contract deal. You have little value, so you feel as though, wow, this is just an opportunity for me. But a person who has high value goes into a contract deal and says, this is an opportunity for us. And so no mm -hmm. one is ever going to present anything to you unless they're going to get something out of that as well. Believe me, no one's going to pay you something unless they feel like they're going to get it back tenfold. No one's going to do So you have to realize when you're walking into a deal, an offer, there is a win on both ends. And so I, I use just different things, different topics, and I only get 15 minutes, myself 15 minutes to touch it. If I don't finish it within 15 minutes, you have to now pick up where I left off with that information and go dig and research. I'm pushing people to go get more and more and more information. And I'm, I'm picking topics, again, that's touching on personal but it's going to help you professionally because when you improve what's going on personally, you're going to automatically, naturally improve what's going on um, professionally. And so that's why I tell people, seek and you shall find. And that's why I offer that platform yep. for. 
Yeah, and you know like, those fifteen minute segments are a bit of a tease because you know you you know because once yeah. the timer go off, I'd be like, oh wait a minute, I'd be wanting to call you up, but like wait a minute now, we gotta finish this conversation right here now. You just can't just leave just leave your brother hanging like this, you know. But, you know, but I, I and, that's it. a, and it's well, well put together. It's well put together. And that's the coaching part of me with my athletes. You can only coach people. You already have the talent, and I can coach you to become that condition you need to become for whatever seed to flourish within you. I can't make the seed flourish. So and I, I, I coach people the same thing with this platform is I'm going to give you enough that I hope you're hungry that instead of calling yeah. me up, you want to say, whoa, whoa, let me go find out what she just said right here. And I want to give, you know, I, I, I want to push people in that direction to say, let's go. I mean, that's how you expand your brain and your mind. And it's yeah. working. It's yeah. working. Yeah, Alakisha, so, so we love yeah, to see you. Thank you. Oh, go ahead. Thank you. Do you have another question, Carlos? I'm sorry. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, for the audience, uh, you know, to everybody listening, you know, who's, you know, looking for an attorney who wants to reach out to you for, you know, uh, consultation, you know, consultation advice and, and everything. How can they find you, you know, you know, your social media? Where can they find you? Where can they contact the law firm to, you know, reach out to you? Absolutely. The best place to find anything that's dealing with Elakeisha is to go to my website because if you go to the website, um, www.allaboutella.com, if you go to the website, all of my social media platforms are there. You can choose to connect. You can choose to connect with me on whatever platform you so choose. Um, on my website, Whatever events I have going on is there. So if you want to stay connected and keep up, my um, podcast, and I do have a separate website that's being built out, but on there right now I have the podcast, but it's also on every platform. It's on Apple Podcasts. It's on Spotify. It's on Audible. Okay. Um, it's on so many uh, platforms. But if you go to my website, I have a link that you can click on and choose your favorite platform that you want to hear the podcast on. So that website is the place to go. To, for you to decide how you want to connect with me. Now, as far as consultation, and uh, Carlos, you would know this, the, the, the great thing, um, I'm blessed to be in a position where I could choose who I represent. Uh, again, like I said, I've never really, I've never looked for clients, always been referrals, and even with the referrals, I sit and I vet them out because it's not about, I've represented some amazing individuals, those that are celebrated on television, all the way down to the, to the starters. It's not about that, right? Because I don't care about the name drop. I don't consider myself celebrity enter, uh, entertainment attorney, none of that. It's not who I have represented. It's the what type of clients that I represent. Because even if I represent you, I would be very quick to give you a disengagement letter if we're not aligned as far as the mindset. Um, so if you're looking for a consultation, the only way that you can contact me is either go to the website and fill out the client intake form or email me at elakisha, E-L-L-A-K-I-S-H-A, at E-S-E-B, e -E law firm, because you can't call me. I'm not going to speak with you because I have to know that it's worth the time invested. When you fill out the client intake form, I'll see what you're talking about. When you email me, I'll see what you're talking about. But more importantly, if I know if you do these two steps, you've invested in yourself because you don't – it takes time out of your time to do that. And so when you send that stuff to me, I'll look at it, I'll vet it, and then we'll have our consultation. I'll see if it's mutually beneficial to work together. Yes, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So at allaboutella.com, Ella Keisha, yes. we love what you are doing. We love what you are about. We will continue to follow your success and continue to learn more about you through your books, through your podcast. It has been a pleasure having you on the show today, and thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you so much for sharing your platform. You're the best. Thank you. Thank you, Carlos. You're amazing, too. <laughs> Thank you. You take care, Alakisha. We'll talk soon. All right. Talk soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>